it's amazing to me to think about how desperate we all are, how much we all long for healthy leadership. We see it all throughout our world and throughout our culture. Did you know that this year more than 15,000 books are going to be written on leadership? Companies, hospitals, universities will spend thousands of dollars on leadership training. You see, leadership affects everything in our world and culture. And it's amazing how everybody longs for healthy, faithful leadership. You see it in schools, you see it in universities and hospitals, businesses. When there's healthy leadership, people prosper and they celebrate when there is healthy leadership. Even within your own marriage, when a husband will love and lead his wife well, there is joy. The gospel is displayed. Love abounds. In fact, when a husband loves his wife, the way that Ephesians 5 says that Christ loves his church and gave himself up for her, you see, there is beauty in the marriage. I have found that when a husband is willing to wash his wife's feet, she will follow him to the ends of the earth. You see, healthy leadership is the desire of all of our hearts because it's something that God has put there for us. Well, as Jesus is marching towards Jerusalem, as he is headed to the place where he came to die on the cross for our sins, he is marching straight forward towards it. And as he's going, two of his disciples ask a very childish question. Jesus then turns that around and uses it as an opportunity to teach the greatest leadership lesson in history. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. For those of you watching online, welcome. Thank you for engaging with us this morning. It's great to gather as God's people to open the scriptures together and to dig in and to see what God has revealed to us this morning. If you're a visitor here this morning, thank you so much for worshiping with us. Um, when we are dismissed at the end of the service, we have a gift that we want to give to you to say thank you so much for worshiping with us, and you can stop by the information desk on your way out to grab one of those gifts. The Gospel of Mark is rich. It's fast-paced. It's hard-hitting. We see the word immediately showing up more than 40 times throughout the Gospel. We see Mark going from one scene of Jesus' ministry to another very quickly. It's why it's fast-paced. Jesus is on the move. In Mark chapter 10, we have just seen Jesus expose the, the trap of wealth and how the gospel sets, that, sets us free from the danger of being allured by wealth. And we see his ministry to the rich young ruler and how ultimately Jesus is the one who is the greater treasure. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. But as he's headed towards Jerusalem, we see Jesus headed with a purpose, and then he's interrupted by two of his disciples. I want you to look at it with me here in the text. In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We're able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus just announced for the third time his plan to suffer, die, and rise again on the third day, James and John ask about getting the best seats in glory. Instead of listening to Jesus and understanding what was ahead, they're thinking only about themselves. I want you to see these three realities right here in the text. The first is this. I want you to see the laser-like focus Jesus has on the cross. Verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Up to Jerusalem. That, that phrase makes a lot of sense because Jerusalem is a city on a hill. Indeed, it's 2,500 feet above sea level. Jesus is coming from an area near the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point, it's the lowest land location on the entire earth. So this is quite literally a 30-mile hike uphill that Jesus is making towards the city. And as they're making the trip up to Jerusalem, they may possibly be singing psalms. Psalms 120 through Psalm 134, they're called the Psalms of Ascent. These are songs that were often sung by God's people as they were ascending the hill to Jerusalem, as they're marching up towards the city of God. For generations, the people would sing these psalms together. And as they're walking, notice verse 32, Jesus is out front. He's leading the charge. He has a laser-like focus on what is ahead of him, marching like a warrior who's going to battle to declare victory. Jesus is marching to Jerusalem to gain the victory over sin and death. The disciples, they're astonished, the text tells us. We're headed towards Jerusalem. Now, what, what, what are we doing here? Why, why are we headed here? You see, Jesus has already twice in the scriptures told the disciples of what was about to happen. The first time happened back in chapter 8, verse 31, where Jesus told the disciples, hey, I'm going to head to Jerusalem as the Son of Man and suffer and die. And the scripture says that Peter rebuked Jesus. That can never go well, by the way. <laughs> Jesus then turns to Peter 
and the rest of the disciples and says, get behind me, Satan. It happens again in chapter 9, verse 31, where Jesus tells the disciples, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die. Now, they're all confused by the statement, but nobody says anything because they don't want to be called Satan by Jesus. Now, here we are in chapter 10, and Jesus, for a third time, is telling the disciples what is ahead of him. He is fully aware of what is about to happen. Isn't that amazing? As I've been studying the gospels lately with my men's group, it's been amazing to see how Jesus, he knows everything. And you're like, whoa, Kenneth, that is deep. That is so good. But I'm like, y'all, it's been blowing my mind as Jesus has sovereign knowledge, this omniscience, omni meaning all, science meaning knowledge. He has all knowledge of what is about to happen to him. Well, here he is a third time saying, this is what's about to happen. And the rest of Jesus' followers are terrified, the text tells us, of what's about to happen. Question Are you afraid of the future? Are you terrified of what is about to happen? I've heard this phrase a lot lately. I am so scared for my kids and grandkids by how the world is going. Can I just encourage you with verse 32? Jesus goes ahead of you. He is fully sovereign over what is about to come. He is not scared, nor is he afraid, and he's leading the charge. Do not fear, panic, or wring your hands over the future because Jesus goes ahead of you. You trust in him. You follow him. Do not be worried, scared, or afraid of the future. Why? Because Jesus goes ahead of you. Don't miss here how determined Jesus is to get to Jerusalem. He tells his disciples, verse 33, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. Hey, y'all, this is happening. We're going. You need to understand this. I like how Dr. Luke says it in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when he writes, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. I love that like a racehorse with blinders on, focused on the finish line. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had a job to do. He had a mission to accomplish. You see, Jesus was resolved to go to the cross at Calvary for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Nothing would stand in his way. This is why he came, to seek and to save that which was lost, to rescue mankind, to bring us back into a right relationship with God. And he does so through the cross. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He would not let anything distract or prevent him from doing what the Father had sent for him to do. And he has suffering ahead of him. He will be, verse 34, mocked and spit upon and flogged and crucified. And yet all of this is in fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said would happen. In Isaiah 53, it says, but he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed 
for our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, two months later, Simon Peter would stand up in Jerusalem at Pentecost and he would declare, though he was delivered up according to, the, according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pain of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Yes, the Jews orchestrated his death. Yes, the Romans were the ones who executed. But make, make no mistake, God was sovereign over the cross. God is the one who ordained ultimately for Jesus to go and suffer because this was the plan of God before the foundations of the world had ever been laid. Jesus knows what is ahead of him and he is undeterred. He's focused. He's ready for as he's approaching, he's thinking of you. Because it would be through his shed blood that your sins and my sins and the sins of the world would be taken away, atoned for, paid in full through the cross. And so here is Christ focused, laser-like focus on getting to the cross. And as he's headed towards Jerusalem, we see number two, the me-first selfishness of the disciples. After Jesus has just cast before them the plan of God to go to the cross, James and John pull Jesus aside and they ask him a question that reveals their selfishness. They ask Jesus, hey, can we sit at your right and left in glory? For my teachers in here, have you ever been teaching a lesson to your class in which it is just flowing right out of your mouth? The content is clear. The room is silent. Everyone is making eye contact with you. They're engaged. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is what I signed up to do. There's just such clarity in this moment of teaching. And then you have a kid who raises their hand and says, can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> or as a parent, you have that sweet, precious moment where you're imparting wisdom to your child. It's that sweet moment where they're making eye contact with you. You share your love for them, how precious they are, how fantastic that it is that they're in family with you and you're teaching them this great principle of life and they just blurt out, I'm hungry. <laughs> That's kind of what's happening here in the text. Jesus has just clearly declared what he was going to go do. And talk about not reading the room. James and John say, hey, can, can we sit at your left and right in the kingdom? I know you're thinking about this cross, but we want VIP seats. John, he can be chief of staff. Hey, I can be your prime minister. You know, we'll run the cabinet meetings. How's this sound, Jesus? Can we, can we do this? These guys are not even paying attention to what really is happening here. I kind of wish I could see Jesus' face in this moment, right? Like, was he puzzled? Did he roll his eyes? I mean, I, I, the scripture doesn't tell us. But why are these guys asking for such a selfish request? And yet, how often do we do the same thing? The Lord tells us to daily deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him. And we're like, hey, can I have a popsicle? 
we oftentimes will interrupt the Lord and say, this is what I want. God, I want this. Not your will, but my will. God, I'm not happy. I want this. Give me this, right? And we find ourselves falling in line just like the disciples, thinking me first. What's in it for me? What can I get? You see, you and I are in a daily battle against our own selfishness. And we're gonna be waging this war for the rest of our lives. Until we go on to glory to be with Jesus, your flesh has to be killed every day. This is what we have to do. Jesus tells these guys, verse 38, you, you don't know what you're asking. He, he, he asked them, verse 38, are you able to drink the cup I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to go through? You see, the cup was a common picture in the Old Testament of the wrath of God in judgment. This is why Jesus isn't praying in the garden of Gethsemane and he prays, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And this baptism he's talking about here, this is not a sprinkling of suffering. This is a complete submersion into the, the suffering that was ahead of him. He says in Luke twelve fifty, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it is finished. Jesus is asking these guys, are you willing to suffer in the same way that I suffer? Are you willing to endure the rejection and the hate and the being despised and ultimately being killed for the glory of God? He's asking, are y'all ready to be doused with the waters of hardship and trial? They're not entirely sure what Jesus means. We're like, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we're, we're all in. I got this. Jesus tells them, guess what? You will be. You're going to suffer. You're going to drink the cup. You're going to be baptized with the same type of suffering and rejection. For when we fast forward to Acts chapter 12, we see where James would be the first apostle who would be martyred. John would face incredible persecution under Emperor Domitian, and he would ultimately be exiled to the island of Patmos. You see, James and John, they don't realize that the path to glory is the path of suffering. You see, the cup of grief always comes before the crown of glory. And if faithfulness to Jesus is your aim, do not think this life will be easy. If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, be prepared to suffer. This is the call of Christ. This is what he's saying. If you're going to follow me, please understand what you're signing up for. This is why oftentimes when I'm sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, and before I lead them to Christ and share, them with, share with them how they can believe the gospel, I ask this question. Is there anything you're not ready to give up yet? A relationship, a possession, even your own life? Because if the answer is I'm not ready to give that up yet, then you're not ready to be a follower of Christ. Because following Jesus is going to be hard. It's a, it's a call to suffer. It's a call to die. And the question is, are you willing to endure that? Well, see here, James and John... They're not thinking about the suffering. They're thinking, hey, we want prominence. We want a position. We, we, we want some notoriety. We want to sit there next to the king. Yeah. Well, when the other 10 disciples hear what James and John have just asked Jesus, they're angry. Verse 41, it's the, it's the word indignant. 
That same word is used uh, earlier when Jesus is indignant with his disciples for stiff-arming kids not coming to him. The word means big angry. So here the disciples are big mad at the other two. The 10 are like, what? Now this is not selfish, I'm not, this is not a righteous indignation. Uh, this is jealousy. This is like, man, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I ask Jesus to sit at his right and left in his kingdom? And so they're so mad at James and John that they would even make such a request because they're the ones who should have thought of it. What in the world? Why, why would you guys do this? But you see, as Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, he's now got division in the ranks. You'd think after three years of pouring into, of investing in these men, pouring into these men, teaching these men, that they'd finally get it. But here they are, days away from walking into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. And here they are bickering and fighting with one another over who gets the best seat in the kingdom. Now, before we pick on James and John, let's remember all of them have been there. Remember back in chapter 9, verse 34, when Jesus asked the disciples what they'd been arguing about? And the text says, but they were silent because they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. You see, following Jesus means crucifying your selfishness. You see, our hearts naturally think, me first. Our hearts are bent in that direction. We received that through our great forefather, Adam. It's that flesh, it's that desire in which we're thinking, what about me? I've got to look out for number one. Well, as followers of Jesus, we must continually battle against our own selfish desires. We must, Luke 9, 23, deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Jesus. We must, Romans 8, 13, that by the Spirit we put the death, the deeds of the body, and we live. We must, Galatians, um, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death what belongs to our earthly nature. You see, as a follower of Jesus, you're not one who elbows for position. God is not impressed by politicking. He's not interested in those who have this highest priority of position. We're not going to be those who argue over who gets to be first. You see, following Jesus means crucifying your attitude of looking out for number one. But rather, let's be a people who obey Philippians 2, where Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. You see, as a follower of Jesus, we declare with the Apostle Paul, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. As the disciples now, as they're arguing over this request, over who gets to sit at the right and left of the king, Jesus calls a timeout. He calls a huddle. All right, everybody get in here. Huddle up, boys. And then number three, he teaches them the countercultural standard of leadership in the kingdom. 
Jesus holds up the patterns of leadership in the world as an example of what not to do. Okay, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord their positions of leadership over others. Those in high positions, they act like tyrants. In, in this world, they, they're more powerful than you and they, they try to have as many possible servants as possible. That's what the world does, verse 42. The Gentiles lord their positions over one another, but here's the key, verse 43. But it is not so among you. Jesus here is casting a vision of what leadership for the disciples looks like. He's contrasting kingdom leadership versus worldly leadership. Jesus says the opposite of what the world says, verse 43. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. You want to be great? Serve. You want to be great? Be slave of all. Be the one who says, it's not about me, but putting others before myself. I'm going to serve humbly and put others' interests before my own. You see, Jesus is not interested in job titles or where you are on the org chart or how many letters come after your name. You want to know what impresses Jesus? Serving humbly. You want to get the Savior's attention? Be a slave of all. Consider yourself not as one to be served, but as one who serves. You see, kingdom greatness looks like changing diapers and picking trash up off the floor and cleaning toilets and doing the dirty, menial, forgotten things that the world looks down upon. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's greatness. That's what leadership looks like. It looks like washing feet. You see, greatness is not about sitting at a table, making decisions that affect everybody else. That's not greatness. Greatness is where you humble yourself and you serve. You take the posture of a servant. So what does this look like? Kenneth, what is practically does this look like? Now, put this in your notes. Three marks of a great leader. These three marks all come from verse 45. And before we unpack these, there's two observations I'm gonna make about verse 45. The first is this, is that verse 45 of chapter 10 is the thesis of the entire book. I've been chomping at the bit as your pastor for us to get to verse 45. Because this is the thesis. This is the main point of the entire book. If you could underline any verse, it's verse 45. Because verse 45 summarizes Mark's whole point of the ministry of Jesus. The second thing is this, and it's a challenge I want to bring to our church. I want to challenge everybody in our church this week to memorize Mark 10.45. We'll recite it together as a family next week. But this is a verse I want you to plant deep into your mind and into your heart because there is so much to unpack here. But verse 45, we see three marks of a great leader. The first one is this, a great leader is selfless. In verse 45, it says, for even the son of man did not come to be served. Think about that, for even the one who has always existed, God the son, Jesus, the the one who is eternal as the second in the Trinity. 
the one who is the king of the cosmos. For even he, the son of man, didn't come to be served. Think about it. The one who left the glory of heaven, the one who had all perfection and glory and honor, he left it all and he was born in human flesh. He had skin and bone like us. And he wasn't born into a palace. He was born in a manger, in a no-name town. He had no hospitals or servants or royalty that could care for his arrival. He humbled himself. You see, Christmas is on display here in verse 45. For we see even the Son of Man, the one who was selfless, the one who models humility. Do you want to know what a great leader looks like? They're selfless. They're not interested in building a brand. They're not playing for the name on the back of the jersey. They're not trying to make a name for themselves. They're selfless. They're, they're seeking to be forgotten. This really old theologian named Count Zinzendorf, he has this great quote in which he tells pastors, preach, die, be forgotten. And I'm like, yes. Our, our staff this week, we were, we were praying together, and one of the, one of the prayers that we, we brought to the Lord is, God, would our names please be forgotten? And may the name of Jesus be remembered forever. Like this, this is what leadership looks like. It's saying it's not about me. Leadership is selfless. Secondly, a great leader is a servant. You see there, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, here it is, but to serve. Jesus put others before himself. You see, this means looking for opportunities to serve. You're not looking for notoriety. You're not looking for praise of man. You're not serving so you can go viral and get likes on Instagram. You serve in such a way that people don't even know that you're there. You serve in such a way that you're only seeking to please the Father. You see, those who seek the praise of man, you just received your reward. That's not us. We're not seeking the praise of man. We're a people who want to serve in the same way that Jesus served, and we seek the praise of an audience of one. Thirdly, a great leader is sacrificial. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, here we go, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus ultimately displays servant leadership by going to the cross. Because at the cross, he was rejected and scorned. He was treated horribly. He was a bloody, awful mess on the cross. Unrecognizable. The beating he endured, the scourging that he tells us about here in the text. He gladly, willingly served humbly by sacrificing, laying down himself for the good of another. We see there in verse 45, he gave his life as a, as a ransom. Uh, that word for ransom, we see it back in Leviticus 25, where a ransom is paying money to buy back a relative who's in slavery. Don't miss the, the imagery there. It's a beautiful exchange. Jesus is the one who's paying, he is buying back a relative who is in slavery 
all of us have, are slaves to sin apart from Christ. Before you knew Jesus, you were in bondage. But when the kindness of God appeared, we just read, Jesus purchased you. He bought you back. With silver and gold? No. Something far more valuable, his precious blood. The cross is where Jesus makes the payment for us. And through his shed blood, he ransoms us. He buys us back from slavery. Revelation chapter five, verse nine says, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you want to know what leadership looks like? Look to Jesus Christ on the cross. That is what leadership looks like. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's the takeaway? How can we go do something with this? It's the impact point and it's this. Humble yourself and serve like Christ. You see, Jesus, even on the night he was betrayed, got down. And he washed the feet of his disciples. Even Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. And he shows what leadership is and says this right here. Washing feet, doing the dirty what no one else wants to do. If you and I are going to follow Jesus, if we're going to lead, let's be willing to get down on our knees. Let's humble ourselves and let's serve. Put the needs of your spouse before yourself. Put the needs of your child before yourself. Put the needs of those under your care before yourself. And you serve humbly. And Jesus says, that is what greatness looks like.